Hello and welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. This is a Zoom recording of a live event organised by the Bay Area Global Health Alliance and hosted by me, yours truly, Ben Plumley. You can find new episodes on our YouTube channel and on our website, ashotinthearmpodcast.com and wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. Hope you find the conversation interesting and informative and have a great week and a safe week, everyone. Well, welcome, everybody, to this very special uh, web event uh, organized by the Bay Area Global Health Alliance in partnership with Medicines 360, um, Resonance Global and PSI. Um, We're looking at the ways in which Uh, skills and expertise from the private sector can be brought to bear on global health priorities. And this isn't going to be your usual non-profits and government agencies need to do this, they need to do that. We're going to be looking right at the heart of the very things that really do make a difference and how the expertise of non-profit companies uh, and the non-profit sector as a whole can actually deliver products, perhaps more effectively than others. So to kick off, I would like to hand over to the illustrious executive director of the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, uh, Sarah Anderson, for a few introductory remarks, and then we'll get right into it. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, everyone, for joining us this morning. Just a little background about the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. The Alliance is a Bay Area global health community now with more than 55 members from across the sectors. So we bring together academic institutions, NGOs, and community-based organizations, as well as tech, biotech, and other private sector companies. We were really created to kind of connect all the amazing organizations in this area that are working on different aspects of global health, but didn't really necessarily know each other. And we're totally dedicated to building this community, working together, to leverage and strengthen the Bay Area as a hub for innovation and to advance global health equity. We are thrilled today to bring together our members, PSI, Medicines 360, and Resonance on some innovative models they've used to help improve access and equity. And with that, let me hand things back over to Ben to introduce our guest and get the conversation going. Thank you. Cheers, Sarah. Um, And so let's get right into meeting our guests. Um, First, Margot Farnstock from Medicines 360. Morning, Margot. How are you doing? Hi, Ben. Thanks for having us today. Nice to see you. So can you tell us a bit about Medicines 360 and what it is you do there? Yeah, so Medicines 360 is a a nonprofit pharmaceutical company. We uh, are about 10 years old, actually a little bit more than that. We're created to address a specific equity gap in the healthcare system here in the U.S. Uh, and we specifically focus on women's health. So before the Affordable Care Act was passed in the U.S., there was a, a hormonal IUD on the U.S. market that cost about $1,000 for women if they wanted to access it. And those of you who know this method of contraception, it's one of the most highly effective methods. And there was a foundation, a big anonymous donor, that thought that that was an unfair situation, that women would have to pay that kind of money. And so clearly it wasn't, it wasn't reachable to many women in the United States. So this foundation made a large uh, philanthropic grant and created our organization that was set up as a private sector-like pharmaceutical company to develop a new product and bring it to the U.S. market and offer it in the public sector in this country at a, at a pretty dramatically lower price as compared to the other options. So we are a private sector model, uh, wholly appropriating private sector approaches. Uh, And we are uh, going to talk today a little bit about our partnership with PSI. I'll let our colleague PSI and my other colleague Andre tell us a little bit more about that. But we are also now really wanting to offer this product into other countries outside of the United States. And I guess um, a whole lot of new research that is finally beginning to target the needs of girls and women, and, and we'll come back to that. Now, you're joined by your colleague, um, Andre uh, Sosler. Sorry. Um, Andre, uh, good morning. How are you today? 
I'm doing very well, Ben, despite being in my bunker here hiding from my children. <laughs> Hopefully you can hear me. I'm doing very well. <laughs> I like that. Your child-free bunker. So, so what do you do for Medicines 360? Um, thanks, Ben. I'm the Senior Director of Impact and Global Access. So I do two different things. One is oversee our impact measurement work, which so far is mostly focused on the U.S. market. And I also oversee our work to make our products available in low and middle income countries. Nice. Well, welcome. Um, we're also joined by Brandon Soloski from PSI. Uh, Brandon, welcome to this webinar. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself and PSI? Thanks, Ben. It's really wonderful to be here. Um, so just a little bit about myself. So my background is really in bringing together the public, the private, and the social sectors. And at PSI, I am really concentrated on bridging multi-sector collaboration to have mutual benefit and impact on critical health challenges. So that's what I'm doing over at PSI. And my, my work here is primarily involved in creating good, strong corporate social responsibility and creating shared value programs across many of our clients to have a collaborative impact here at PSI. Nice. And PSI itself is one of those, those very large US-based international NGOs, isn't it? Uh, indeed. So we are quite large. We are operating oh, in close to 30 different countries right now um, across a number, a number of critical areas, primarily in sexual reproductive health. But I would say our wheelhouse is really in using data and insights to empower the individual consumer in their health-seeking decisions. Lovely. And we will, we will come back to that um, as we start defining consumer and what we've learned from the private sector in terms of uh, thinking about its customer base. Um, and last, and by certainly not least, we are joined by Marissa Gilman, who is from Resonance Global. Uh, Marissa, good morning. Um, how are you doing today? I'm excellent. Thank you so much for having me in this conversation. So could you tell us a bit about Resonance Global and what you do there? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Resonance is a consulting firm that works at the intersection of the public and the private sector. So kind of a, a, a pea in the same pod is what Brandon was describing. And um, we bring private sector approaches and the power of partnership to solve complex challenges that span from supply chain issues down to global health challenges. Um, and we work with the nonprofit sector, with major multinational corporations, with foundations and donors to address these challenges. And I, in particular, lead Resonance's global health practice. I'm also the co-founder and the co-lead for a platform we launched called the Inclusive Innovation Exchange, which, spots, which spotlights innovations that span global to local and that are cross-sector approaches to address challenges in global health. Lovely. Well, welcome to this, to this webinar. So the first set of questions uh, sort of turn this a bit, a bit, a bit on its head. Um, we're looking at how to utilize uh, private sector expertise. But what if we start with the question, just what can't we, what can we not expect from the private sector? Um, this is something I've been struggling with most of my career as uh, building public-private sector partnerships, particularly in the global fight against AIDS. Um, and I'm reminded of that uh, urban myth that if we can get a, a can of Diet Coke um, or Cherry Coke, um, get it right across the war line in a, in a gruesome civil war inside the Democratic Republic of Congo, if we can get a Coke can across that, we can deliver anything to anyone, including medications. Um, and we've learned since the heady days of the Global Business Council and Coalition on AIDS in the early 2000s that that is, that is simplicity in itself oversimplicity. So, so Margot, if I could start with you, you've Medicines 360, a nonprofit company filling a need that the established pharmaceutical sector can't or won't fill. Um, what have you realized right from the get-go you had to put to one side that weren't expertise that you felt could be used? So I think you've answered the question already in an interesting way, Ben. Like the way I think about it is around incentives. I think that's sort of the big theme that runs across how public and private sectors operate. Um, and like you, I've spent about 20 years trying to think about private sector approaches and how they applied to uh, solving these equity questions in health. And I think that myth of the how do we get the Coke bottle or can to the last mile is certainly 
been much written about, and a lot of us, particularly groups like PSI, have been obsessing about that last mile and, and can't we close that gap? Um, but I think what there really is an opportunity in using a private sector approach to solve a nonprofit or public sector problem. And so I think the incentives are the thing. Uh, clearly, the economic incentives are different in the private sector and in a public sector setting. And I think what we can't expect, and this is not true for all private sector uh, companies, so I, we can't generalize really writ large, but I think that, that it's hard to expect a private sector to really care as much about a public sector or public health question, because the incentives in those cases can be very different. Um, so the way that we've been thinking about it with our company, with our product, is what can we do? We're freed by not having shareholders. We're freed by the need to maximize profits. So we can actually obsess on that mission part of our organization and closing that last mile, uh, which clearly takes resources. But the way that we've been able to do that is uh, we have a currently ongoing clinical trial for the product that's continuing to gather more evidence about how long it And in a private sector model, you wouldn't necessarily have the incentive to do that because maybe you want your a consumer to change your product um, more frequently than, than it has to. So I think by providing more years of efficacy data, for example, we are providing a public health good to the community and particularly in family planning. Um, what's great is that the other uh, uh, company in this category has, has done the same. <laughs> so we'd like to think we also have influenced part of the sector to, um, by focusing on those public health goals, to also follow us on a public health goal. I think the other example I can cite is around price. So in the markets that we're going to talk about today, including places like Madagascar, where uh, we transparently shared that our price was going to be a certain amount that was pretty dramatically lower than uh, what women would have to pay otherwise in Madagascar, where the product had been available, but on a very small, uh, uh, very few units were actually in country. And so by advertising that price, uh, again, it's brought down the other uh, the other product much, uh, much more competitive level. So I think by, by putting uh, public health goals first, we can also work with and partner with the private sector, but also have that influence. And I think that's the fascinating thing about using, in some cases, in our case, really wholesale, a private sector approach. If you layer on the lens of a nonprofit or public health mission, there are clearly tension. There's a lot of opportunity. Thank you. And and just one more thing before we go on to, to the other guests. Um, I'm reminded of the, uh, the, the first phases of the female condom, its distribution and marketing in, um, in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, uh, when that first came out, I was, I guess, really with the United Nations, UNAIDS. And it became very clear that a product that was made free at the point of delivery actually didn't generate a lot of interest. If there was some value attached to it, a very small value, that actually had a huge impact in encouraging women to want the product. Is that, uh, is that also an urban myth or is that something that, that you at Medicines 360 have, have seen and understood? I think that's a great question, and it brings to mind two things. And by the way, when I was at the Hewlett Foundation, I also uh, supported a lot of the work around the female condom. And I inherited some of that work when I joined the foundation and had to really think carefully about what we did with those investments. Because as you said, the female condom, I think, hasn't really risen to the promise that we all thought it would in terms of having a method that was giving women the, the power to use something that also protected against HIV and other STIs. Uh, I think that what that says to me, and we've learned a lot with our current product as well, is you can't just think if we build it, they will come. <laughs> There's a right. whole lot of work that the private sector can do and does very well to understand people's needs, desires, aspirations, and that we can't sit in a, in a conference room or uh, outside of a community and design something without really listening to what people want and need. And so I think we certainly learned that by bringing the product to the market in this country. I think in the U.S. it was a little bit more complicated by factors of insurance policies. And we really needed to understand how the system works to make sure that the product was going to be used by women. And so our naivety a little bit was around um, that the system just isn't designed for sometimes for nonprofit or public health incentives. But I think that female condom example is very uh, good because groups like PSI, again, we can chat about it a bit today, have done a lot to invest in what do consumers want, what do women and girls want in different contexts, and how can we really design products that respond to those needs? And I think the female condom had a 
wonderful intention. And I have been to a female condom conference in The Hague where I got totally got religion because, you know, for some people that were vulnerable to HIV transmission and didn't want to negotiate with their partners, this is female condom is a fabulous method. But it clearly uh, and I think the free question, I think PSI and Brandon can weigh in on that. I think there still is evidence that if you have to pay a little bit of, some, you know, of, of money for something, that it it does potentially mean you use it more. Um, we do, however, in this country with our product have uh, uh, an ethos, I would say, that if a woman can't pay, if she's uninsured, that we would hope and we work with clinics. In fact, we have a free product program for clinics that qualify that they should have access to free product if that's what they need. And that is something that um, here in the United States, th that is an element, uh, perhaps not large enough, perhaps too much, but an element of, of free availability if you can't afford. Uh, but Brandon, let me turn to you. And, and I would love to know your thoughts on the history of, uh, of PSI's engagement with commodity development and distribution. But at the 38,000 foot level, what sort of specific expertise do you think it is that PSI brings to bear that the private sector cannot and that in many ways that it wants to get from you? Yeah, so uh, thank you, Ben. So as you mentioned, uh, um, you know, PSI is an organization that's been around for a while. So we've got a 50-year history. Uh, and in that time, we've obviously gained a, a lot of insights uh, into the individual consumer behavior. So, you know, as we're, we're talking about sort of partnership here, you know, obviously, um, you know, partnership is fantastic and hopefully you can make the sum of your parts greater than the whole. And I think that's often what we are doing by sort of leveraging our history and looking at our wheelhouse. When we talk about the individual consumer, we have really great data and insights that a lot of companies might not ordinarily have. You know, when we're working across more than 30 countries and we are distributing a product or products uh, to folks that might be marginalized or might be a little bit more underserved, that is insight that we can bring to the private sector. And we can amplify our efforts together by sharing what we have learned and then also by collaborating with the private sector in order to enhance what we are doing already, whether that be coming from technology or skills transfer. So bringing these uh, together you know, uh, is something that we can have a mutually and better impact on. When I think of PSI, I'm increasingly these days, I'm thinking of uh, the use of new technologies to reach people, to develop markets. How, how has this um, affected your work, affected, affected PSI's sort of strategic focus? And, and to what extent do these new technologies, uh, you know, again, the simplistic assertion might be that, well, you know, internet access is not particularly good across vast swathes of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, but that isn't sort of entirely true. How have you been able to, to harness the power of new technology? So, you know, technology is definitely not necessarily ubiquitous, depending on sort of the geography. So, you know, everything that needs to be heavily localized um, and this, you know, involves a very strong human-centered design, a design thinking sort of concept and putting a lot of this together. Uh, so when you're looking at a country in LAC versus a country in Southeast Asia, they're going to have very different data and insights. But there's absolutely no way we could achieve what we wanted to achieve without the private sector being involved. So we have learned from our experience, for instance, you know, whether this come through SMS messaging, whether this come through the Internet, when it comes to social behavior change, reaching the consumer and understanding the consumer for what they need and how they are going to access information is absolutely critical to all of our work. We're not going to be able to distribute products or have an impact on health if we're not able to meet the consumer where they are at and receiving information the way they receive. And that absolutely comes through our partnerships with the private sector. Thank you. Um, Andre, perhaps I could come to you next. Um, uh, Margot dangled in front of us the case study of Madagascar and how that is a really terrific example of how the sectors have come together. Could you walk us a little bit through that? What happened and, and why you're so excited about it? Sure, yeah, I would love to. Um, so I think, first of all, to just add a little flavor to what your first question about, you know, the Coke bottle, the Coke can, and why it's not getting there, with this specific product, the hormonal IUD that we are partnering with PSI to bring to Madagascar, as well as a number of other countries in Africa right now. It was first approved in Europe in 1990, and then it became available in the U.S. in 2000. And we are now in 2021, and it is still largely, I would say, almost unavailable in the markets where we're working. And 
So that is clearly not the Coke bottle example. This is a case where the market has failed and where innovative approaches were absolutely needed. Um, I think to um, get back to the question of, you know, what what is working from the private sector in our partnership with PSI and how are we leveraging the best of both of our organizations? Um, as Margot said, you know, what was great about Medicine 360 is as soon as we had our FDA approval, even before that, we went out to the global community, including PSI, and said, we will make this product available essentially at our cost of good, because we have the firm belief that what is available here in the U.S. for women should be available for all women. And that, you know, there's plenty of evidence showing that the more choices of method a woman has, the more women use contraception. So there's not one method that's right for all women, but having that additional choice actually raises overall contraceptive use in the country. So it was this shared principle that we, we went together to Madagascar first. And I think some of the cool things in terms of treating the, the woman as a consumer and really understanding the market using that private sector approach, um, PSI did a ton of research and really has made this a lifestyle product in, in Madagascar. It's not, it's not about a medication. It's really become much more in terms of like, if you think of their tagline, um, it's all about this product reduces menstruation and the, they use really cool play on words where in French, the word for period is the same as the word for rules. So with fewer periods, life is free is the tagline. Yeah, that's English translation, but it also means with fewer rules, life is free. And so back to your point of like, should it be a free product? They're actually positioning it as an aspirational product to start with the idea that if you get urban women using this product, that that will eventually trickle out. That's the way to really eventually get the bigger market. And so it's not it's not free. And they've played around with the price point and they're doing things like rather than promoting in Malagasy, they're promoting it in French to just really heighten that like this is an aspirational product. So a lot of the themes that you have brought up in these prior questions are really coming out in our Madagascar partnership. This is terrific. How how does the uh, Ministry of Health, the Madagascan Ministry of Health, uh, support and engage with you? Have they have you found them to be um, a help or a burden? Because Madagascar, I I hope the citizens won't uh, won't be too upset with me saying this, but it does have at times quite a conservative lean. Probably a better question for some some folks in the audience who are at PSI, but I'll answer what I what I know since it's really PSI that's doing the relationship. The Madagascar government is has made commitments to family planning and has a goal to increase uh, family planning use. So at the point that we decided this is where we want to bring uh, this product to begin with. Um, PSI and another one of our partners called WCG, um, formerly Women Care Global, approached um, the government and discussed the product. And there was great support. In fact, the MOH wrote a letter of support to the regulatory authorities, sort of the Madagascar FDA, saying, we believe in this method. Please look at their application, sort of to help smooth that process. So I would say they have been supportive from what I've seen. They also, I believe, had a participant in our initial, we send a trainer from the U.S., someone who is very familiar with our product, a, um, a doctor at Stanford, to go train PSI's trainers. And I believe there was a, an MOH participant in that initial training. So my sense, Ashley, you can jump in if I'm wrong. I see you're on the, in the audience. I believe they've been really supportive. Yeah, so I'm Ashley Jackson. I work with PSI. I've been collaborating with M360 on this work in Madagascar and elsewhere. And it's true, the Ministry of Health has been very supportive. They have a family planning division and program. And um, they know that in Madagascar, women have too few choices for contraceptive methods. And there's no one method that's going to be right for everyone. But we see that two thirds of women in Madagascar who use contraception are using just one method, the injectable. Um, that that's what's most widely accessible, but it's not right for everyone. Um, so they were very excited to broaden choice for women. And they were they worked with us as the trainers for healthcare providers, and they've continued to be involved in supervision of the private healthcare providers. Um, they, of course, also supervise public sector providers, and they're really interested in scaling up access nationally um, in the public sector as well as the private sector to make this method available more broadly now that we have introduced on a small scale and seen very high levels of uptake, continuation of use, satisfaction with the method. Um, we have a lot of data supporting, um, you know, evidence showing that this would be very valuable to make available more broadly. 
So uh, we're working on a national scale-up plan with the Ministry of Health, and the method will be free through the public sector. Ashley Jackson, thank you very much. And um, I should also say, um, uh, for all transparency, you mentioned WCG Cares. I'm actually on the board of that, and, and I'm sure that its chair, Jill Sheffield, would absolutely crucify me if I didn't make a <laughs> shout out to Shannon and colleagues there. Um, Marissa, um, what I think all of this shows is a huge cacophony of players working in trying to knit together effective multi-stakeholder strategies. Um, it's a bit of a crowded field, isn't it? What, what has um, Resonance done to try and noodle this together in an effective way? Yeah, it is crowded. And also it is so important that all of these players are in it together. You know, what we've seen, health challenges are complex and they're not discrete. You know, health challenges exist within the context of society. There are economic issues. Um, there's so many things that factor into one's health. And so you need all players at the seat, at, having a seat at the table. Um, so at Resonance, one of the things that we found really helpful first is figuring out what your goal is with an initiative. You know, if you're a player that is trying to make a difference, you know, let's say... Um, you know, in, in promoting uptake of use of, of contraception, making sure you're clear on what your goal is, making sure you're clear on what your value add is, and then determining for the other players that are involved in the holistic ecosystem, what are each of their contributions here? You know, and like with the work that, that PSI is doing in understanding the market research and being able to generate demand for these products, that is such an important piece to ensuring access because you want to make sure that people actually want the products that you're generating. Um, and so that's where it combines both a partnership approach, but then also leveraging lessons learned from the private sector. So ensuring that you are treating these people as people who have choices and making sure that this is a choice that they want to make for themselves. Um, I think another key piece as well is making sure that that there's clear decision-making power when you have all these people in, in the same room, that there's a clear governance, governance structure. That's something that we've seen, you know, when you have players from different sectors, they each have different motivations. And so sometimes before you get in a room together, you're not clear on what those motivations are. And so being really thoughtful and intentional and strategic in who you have in the room and ensuring that you're engaging all the players in this ecosystem in a thoughtful, responsible way. And to sort of pick up on that, Marissa, do you, uh, let me put this to you fairly directly. Do you, do you think of the end user as the customer or is the customer the person that prescribes or makes decisions about availability of product? It's a good question. And it's one we've discussed on the Inclusive Innovation Exchange because there are different innovations. There are some that are innovations that are targeted to improve the patient experience. And then there are other innovations, you know, like M Pharma, for example, um, mm. that is disrupting supply chain. And that's actually improving the experience for the pharmacists themselves. You know, I do think, though, that we need to consider the patient as the ultimate end beneficiary. And so how do we improve all of the things along the value chain to ensure that they're able to have the access? Access to quality healthcare. Yeah, uh, I mean, sort of ideologically, I come from the perspective that uh, uh, the, the patient, the um, the person from the community, is ultimately the uh, ultimately the consumer. But it's healthcare; it's complicated, and um, uh, you know, it's it's the one size absolutely does not fit all. Well, look, let's turn our attention then to how we look at global access for products, whether they're pharmaceuticals in family planning, whether it's vaccines. And, you know, Brandon, maybe I could start with you. Um, <clears throat> we've, we've spoken a bit about how you, uh, both in your career and now at PSI, joined the dots, say between vaccine communication and family planning communication. And by the way, this is something that we at the Bay Area Global Health Alliance uh, are entering into a partnership with Sabin to do much more work on this, understanding the role of, the, of social media and how that can influence things. And and, and so my question for you is, uh, and this would be very helpful for us, um, are there private sector lessons to be learned or, 
or, or are we still at a very much earlier stage? Is it not just nonprofits who have to learn how to use these new technologies to communicate around vaccine acceptance and family planning acceptance, um, as well as the private sector needing to learn how to do this? Because ultimately, the influencers, the people who drive decisions about what to think about vaccines and family planning tools can very often be local neighbours, people you've never met, people putting an Instagram uh, reel or a, or, a, or a TikTok dance. So, so to what extent are you learning from what other people are doing or are you just sort of picking up as this sort of organically develops itself? Yeah, so great question, Ben. So um, there's, there's a lot within that, you know, understanding what drives the consumer, the solutions that are out there, the supply and the demand, looking at the social behavior change. These are, are not problems um, that have, you know, just suddenly emerged in COVID and looking at vaccines to, to bring it a little bit more uh, to where we're at today. You know, these things go back to social behavior change when we're talking about uh, sexual reproductive health. You know, we've been talking about products that are available in Madagascar. We could have the greatest products in the world that are available. We have those right now with vaccines. People still don't take them. It comes a lot down to social behavior change. And in order to do that, we really need to leverage the power of partnerships in order to uh, actually have an impact. When it comes to vaccines, for instance, you know, we're, we're leveraging and we're looking at our experience in sexual reproductive health. What have we needed to do to drive the decision-making uh, behavior of the individual consumer? What do we need to do now in order to do that with COVID-19 and our social behavior change program uh, in partnership with Facebook? Um, we are using the power of social media to reach vast numbers of people. We could simply not have done that without the private sector. So utilizing those new skills, those new technologies, whether that comes from training as well from our private sector partners, we're able to do a lot more. We're able to leverage all of these things that the private sector has been able to do really well, but at the same time, be true to ourselves and leverage our experience in this space. We have a lot of experience in social behavior change. So by putting these elements in this history and our backgrounds together, we're really able to have a, a pretty big impact. And just to kind of put a perspective and numbers on that, just in the time we've started a social behavior change program around COVID-19 with Facebook, we've already reached 100 million people across a half a billion impressions. That is something that just could not have been done if we were working on our own. So we are incredibly grateful uh, for our partners and certainly looking for more so that we can do more together. It's something Sarah and I give a lot of uh, consideration to. Um, how valuable, how impactful are impressions? Uh, and I'll give you an example. We recently held a briefing for Bay Area citizens of the Indian diaspora to get a sense of what was going on with the COVID crisis um, in Southern Asia, and with a particular focus on the LGBT and Hijra communities. Uh, to our surprise, the uh, the advertisement for this event went absolutely viral. We had tens, hundreds of thousands of people liking it and 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 resharing it. I'm not sure that anyone actually saw <laughs> the the actual event, but certainly there was something that we picked up on that 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 touched a nerve. So so how do you go about thinking? Um, about making use of of, uh, of impressions, of clicks, of likes. Yeah. So you know, it can um, localizing things is really important, and then using actual data and insights. Um, so again, you know, looking at sort of tools that we have learned and borrowed and worked alongside with the private sector in terms of the types of testing we're able to do. You know, does a picture of a naked mask uh, just on its own uh, is that very appealing for encourage someone uh, to wear a mask? Not not really. But when you, you know, uh, depends on sort of the imagery that happens. You know, we look at a, a country like Cambodia where we've had some very successful social behavior change programs. We've had engagement rates of 300%. So that means, you know, people on average are forwarding, sharing, uh, liking um, what they see um, at a, a very high, um, unusually high rate. You know, and that has, that comes about because things have been localized. You know, what works in Cambodia is not necessarily going to work in El Salvador. So in this case, um, using sort of a human-centered design, design thinking to drive and localize has been really, really important to us. And we've been able to borrow from our experience around sexual reproductive health and social behavior change 
to carry this over to COVID. Thanks, Margot. Um, I, I wanted to ask to get your perspective on vaccine development over the last year for COVID-19, both in terms of the dramatic speed that clearly the world is able to do when it puts its mind to it. But for those of us that are interested in broad global distribution and access, um, have you been disappointed? Have you been, let's say, even alarmed? And, And I'll share with you that Uh, For me, the idea of the mRNA vaccines requiring such intense freezing and refrigeration was, was for me, really, really troubling, given that the the bulk of the needs were in countries where that kind of technology was not readily available or serviceable. So so as you look forward, um, how can we really take advantage of this moment of what may or may not be a sense of global solidarity for health? This is such a challenging question, Ben, and I think it's been a, uh, especially with the recent rates of increase of the virus in Africa, I was just reading about the stories from Uganda, um, even Tunisia, and countries that you might be surprised are having a challenge in addressing COVID right now, because they don't have vaccines. And that is uh, one, it's the biggest equity challenge that we're facing as a globe right now. And, I, you know, Medicine 360 has not been as plugged into some of those vaccine discussions as probably you have been. But from what I'm seeing, I think there's a lot that we can learn around this idea. And we've used this human-centered design as a theme today. But the idea of having appropriate technologies and appropriate products and services for people, uh, it's true. The first vaccine that this country in the U.S. got approved uh, on the emergency authorization was the Pfizer product that required uh, these high levels uh, of freezing. So uh, is that an appropriate technology for Madagascar? Clearly, you know, not at the moment, let's say. Uh, So I think this idea of having appropriate technologies with places they need to go, and then obviously the cost question is massive. And so I have been heartened that the U.S. administration has given more vaccines of late. Uh, It's clearly not enough. Um, I think that you know, in the contraceptive space, we see that when uh, when product categories are, are really um, are served only by one or two private sector companies, it can be a challenge to have supply that's adequate enough to cover the needs of people. And so in our space, when we're thinking about specific product of this hormonal IUD, you know, one of our goals has been to at least inject a second supplier of the product into the space so that you have, uh, and for us as a nonprofit, 501c3 organization, we have the incentive to Stay. We can stay in the market because that's the mission. And it's again, it's not to say the private sector doesn't do the right thing all the time. I think the vaccines are actually a good example of the fact that a lot of them have done the right thing. But I think this market dynamics ultimately do play out because the incentives are just very different. So I, I think um, clearly we need more money in the space of vaccines out to the world. I think um, I would love to see the kind of, I think we're recently seeing galvanization around issues like climate change at a global level just in the last even six months. Uh, I think this, the vaccine question is just critical. It's really, it's really insane that countries like Kenya and others that have um, really sophisticated uh, sectors in most cases have not been able to um, get the supplies that they need for vaccines. So yeah, it's a joint effort and um, it's humbling to think I will just quickly also add, I think having, I did not spend most of my career. I am someone who comes out of, I have a policy background. I spent many years at a foundation here in California and now joining an organization that is focused on developing quality products and getting them approved by regulatory authority and bringing them to market has given me a whole different appreciation of how difficult it is to develop these innovations. And I think the other thing, just to quickly highlight, I think for this discussion, which would be really interesting, is the interplay between government investment and some philanthropic investment. And then when the private sector really pulls it through, through the regulatory process, gets it to the market. And if you look at, for example, the Moderna vaccine, you know, had significant investments from the U.S. government to make that happen. Um, And I think Pfizer didn't really have about that investment. So, again, I think the, the resource question, the incentives that are involved in these product development processes probably really matters a lot to equity. Um, and I think that's something that, that clearly our field is going to continue grappling with. Um, but I'd love to see this uh, continue to be a conversation. 
Well, and Margo, I think it also brings up the fundamental question of business model, you know, which is something that is truly innovative about Medicines 360. And it's something that we're starting to see a lot more innovations more broadly happen in particularly in the global health space. And I think, you know, global health has an interesting history because so much of it started with donor-led investment. And I feel like in the past 15 years, we've been starting to see transitions. We've been starting to see pain points with that and questions around how do you transition from donor funding to other, you know, more sustainable sources. That was actually an engagement that we did at Residence on OpenLMIS, which is one of the open source logistics management softwares where a major donor realized, you know, they wanted to figure out how do we sustain this over the long term rather than just through donor investment. And so they actually had engaged us to help them do that research to figure out what's a long-term sustainable business model for this platform. Um, you know, and I think we're seeing new organizations like the, the Diabetes Clinic, Clinicas de la Sucar, which is a for-profit chain of diabetes clinics that actually is still reducing out-of-pocket costs for patients. And so I think there's so many new ways to think about how to ensure people have access to quality care and doing it in ways that aren't just a for-profit model and not just a non-for-profit model. And there's, there's, there's so many exciting possibilities. Well, this is for, for both Marissa and Margot um, uh, and a bit of a twofer. Uh, your, your comment, um, Marissa, about uh, the behavior of the donor community is now really, really interesting. We've spent a decade relying to a very large extent, on one foundation that is based up the road in Seattle. Um, and, you know, God bless them, but for better or for worse, you know, that that has been a significant source of investment, particularly in technologies and particularly around the monitoring and evaluation of approaches. But we now have a setting where, whether it's um, Melinda French Gates, whether it's uh, Mackenzie Scott, or you, you mentioned the Moderna vaccine, whether it's Dolly Parton, that there is a very strong interest from women philanthropists to make a mark. Um, is that a coming trend or do you see that as just a fixture of the moment? Oh, I think that's definitely a coming trend, and I think it's exciting. And I think um, just following the recent ac actions of Mackenzie Scott in the way that she's giving is is exciting. It's it's still a little bit. Um, it sounds like it's still a little bit of a magical process for those people who do actually get selected, which is you know wonderful. And I know several of those folks who've gotten money in the last week or so. And um, I think it's really exciting to think about the kind of flexibility that a funder like Mackenzie Scott is 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 uh, providing. Um, I, I was so fortunate to work for a funder that did prioritize flexibility and did prioritize basically finding the right grantees and groups to fund and letting them do the work. And I think in the product development space, uh, there is a lot of money, including the foundation that you referenced, the Foundation in Seattle, who's invested a lot upstream, particularly in contraceptives over the last uh, couple of decades. And they're funding some really exciting and very edgy technologies that are very early uh, stage in the development. But what we've seen and we've experienced this ourselves is that there's not as many resources when you whittle down those innovations and really try and bring a product through a, a clinical process, through a regulatory process, and then through the distribution and marketing to get it to, to people and, and really find people where, where they live. That is enormously expensive. And there's, I don't, from what I see, not enough innovation and, and investment in that, particularly and so there are a lot of uh, exciting things happening, as you know, probably uh, in women's health as well, like things like re-ventures that are uh, setting up venture funds and pooling philanthropic money to try and invest in for-profit companies in women's health. So I think there are innovations in the finance side happening uh, that are super exciting. And I would just, any donor out there listening, <laughs> flexibility, flexibility, doesn't mean you don't care what's happening. Um, it doesn't mean you don't monitor the outcomes and you don't track the success, but I think um, for all of us in the nonprofit sector to be successful, I think the flexibility, again, particularly on product development, which is so risky and it's it's uh, so timely in the sense that you have to give these products to people because sometimes they save lives. I think um, marrying the risk-taking with flexibility for some of these new emerging donors who just have the luxury of having a lot of money to give away, <laughs> I would just really add for that, particularly for these for these issues that we're talking about in these markets. 
And I think yeah. that's the interest. Oh, sorry, Ben. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Marissa. That's the interesting thing to observe as well is the donor behavior patterns differ depending on the type of donor they are, you know? So like Mackenzie Scott has so much more flexibility to invest in risky ventures that an agency like USAID perhaps wouldn't be investing in. Um, and so just considering where your venture is in terms of its innovation life cycle and who it makes the most sense to approach in order to, to get funding. Just about uh, Mackenzie, one of our members, the San Francisco Community Health Center, was one of the beneficiaries of this recent round of funding. And uh, it is an experience like no other to sort of, you know, to sit with the board and sit with the CEO and say, oh, my God, we have got what is not an insubstantial amount of money. What in heaven's name do we do? You know, there's just nothing that's prepared you for this. It's a wonderful feeling to have, by the way. Well, look, I'm going to go to a question from the floor. It's from Shelley, Shelley Helgeson from Equalize Health. Um, and uh, if it's uh, okay, Brandon, I'll, I'll pitch it over to you. Um, uh, Shelley's curious about the partnership between Facebook and PSI. How did it come about and how is it structured? Yeah, great. Um, just to, yeah, and to kind of weave in what we were just talking about in terms of kind of uh, uh, giving and sort of how this landscape has changed. Um, you know, one of the emerging trends that I think we, we kind of obviously seen um, is the alignment of one's business. Uh, with their giving. So increasingly, uh, in my experience, I typically see a Fortune 500 company, when they are into giving and having an impact on the community, they're tying their employee engagement to that type of giving. They're tying their business uh, to that type of giving. So here we have Facebook um, leveraging um, its natural wheelhouse in social media and working with PSI, who is working around social behavior change. So this is kind of a, a, a natural fit. Uh, and this goes back a little bit pre-COVID, where we were looking at um, some specific targeted social behavior change when it comes to changing health-seeking uh, health, um, uh, consumer behavior uh, in certain countries. So we've had this relationship going for a little bit of time. Uh, but obviously, right now, in the age of COVID, taking advantage of our learnings, um, as well as each of our strengths, has um, resulted in quite a fruitful relationship in terms of the impact that we're going to have. And we'll be getting back some really interesting data quite soon on our brand lift studies to actually see the type of lift that we've had in terms of driving people towards uptaking COVID. So a little bit of a long answer. I hope I answered your, your, your question there, Shelley, but I'd be happy to connect offline as well. Oh, and I think we, we'd all want to be watching closely, Brandon, and seeing seeing these data points come out. So uh, maybe we can invite you back at a, at a later point. Um, there's, there's one other question that, that has come up. We've spoken a lot about um, products for girls and women, family planning, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, and we've used Madagascar as the example. Uh, but one of the other features of this new environment is our attention on marginalized communities more broadly. They can be north or South. Um, what we're seeing with COVID um, is uh, vaccine um, hesitancy and limited access in people of colour in the United States. Um, that has been particularly the case at the global level uh, when you see how limited funding uh, COVAX, the WHO-led initiative, has actually generated. And again, it was something that the Alliance um, Bay Area Global Health and Alliance working uh, and partners working in India saw when we were looking at how the LGBT communities had been able to respond. And I suppose um, the question really for all of our, ho uh, our guests is, is how we can mainstream um, product development, service development uh, for marginalized communities, uh, home and abroad. And, you know, Andre, perhaps I could start with you, given that you have had that uh, experience of working in Madagascar. Are there lessons to be learned there for us? Yeah, that's a question near and dear to my heart, Ben. Um, 
you know, I found it so interesting in our work with IUDs. My background is working globally and just through Medicines 360, I've started to work on our impact measurement in the U.S., as I mentioned. And so many of the barriers that we see to access in Madagascar and Zambia and all the all of the countries where we're working with PSI and others, we see here in the U.S. as well. So, for example, you know, lack of providers in rural areas or not enough uh, client load to get enough practice with IUDs so that providers have that experience or misperceptions around the method. Um, you know, the idea of counseling with what the, the provider and what the medical community thinks is most important, like efficacy, when really what's most important to a woman might be, you know, weight gain or how this affects her menses. And so all of these themes, I think we see abroad and in the U.S., and one of Margot and I have been sort of um, to see if we could have some sort of uh, cross-pollination from our global and U.S. partners. Uh, we see one really interesting example is that we've just recently started talking with a mobile clinic here in the U.S. that's working. It just started in Mississippi. And we know that this um, innovation has been widespread, you know, um, I think PSI, but certainly some of our other partners has this, have this idea of mobile clinics. Um, and so now seeing that sprouting up in the U.S. as well and how can we learn from each other, I think we see so many of the same themes. It might just, you know, they might vary in magnitude. Um, it might vary in the amount of resources you can bring to bear. But, I, you know, I really think that so much of it is really the, the same problem just in sort of a different, <laughs> different disguise. I completely agree, Andre. And it's actually interesting. I was having a chat with a major healthcare company, and this woman was a doctor from the country of Colombia, but was now applying her her background in global health to address maternal mortality rates in low resource environments in the state of Georgia. Um, and I think, you know, I think there are two things. One, focusing on it as as a solution area. You know, if if you are looking to improve a particular metric within health in a low resource environment, focusing on that rather than trying to apply a, a solution that was used elsewhere and just plugging it in. You know, I think that ties to the second theme that has we've been hitting on a lot, which is human-centered design and really putting these people and the context at the core and then designing for that. Whether it's a low resource environment in the US or a, a low resource environment elsewhere, you have to understand the context, the ecosystem, the culture, the values in order to figure out what's important and what solution makes the most sense to solve the health issue. And yeah. I think if I could just pick up on that, sorry, Ben, uh, just this thought about uh, designing for what people want and need. And I think that I've seen my limited view so far to the pharmaceutical industry um, and I think it's true for the contraceptive development space has been there hasn't been as much consultation with women before innovations are designed. And so it gets down the road. And again, if you build it, they will come. Why aren't people taking, don't people want this particular product? And so I think there's a ton of innovation and really exciting work to be done that uses these principles of design thinking and human-centered design that really creates new ways that product development companies pharma companies, nonprofit or for-profit, who think about these communities that we aren't really reaching, that we are not uh, really uh, uh, enticing around the products that may be available. You know, we have to get sort of beyond, I think, what some of the traditional ways of getting that input have been. Um, and some of the ways I think that traditionally you'd have an advisory board and, you know, the ad board gets together periodically. Um, so one of the things that we're looking at, particularly in the United States right now, is to partner with, a, a frankly, a community-based organization or an advocate that really represents people in some of the marginalized communities that we can directly interact with the people that we're trying to serve. Because as, a, as an organization based in San Francisco with about 40 staff, um, and our interactions, if uh, when we have them, are primarily at the clinic level, we don't have the ability always to see into the lives of people trying to serve. And so I think we need to really get better at doing that. And I think that's another area where private sector companies just may not have the incentive to do that or really think about doing that. But as a as a nonprofit, we can say, well, we'd love to approach another nonprofit and develop a partnership with you where you are helping us get those insights that we need to really be able to serve the people that are being left out. And so that's something I think for us in the next couple of years, hopefully we'll start to hear. And, and that was something, actually, that the the pharmaceutical industry did very well in the AIDS movement. It reached out to the LGBT communities, 
community advisory boards, drug design con consultations. Uh, so yeah, there is absolutely something there. Um, I, I got to say, I was really struck last year working for the governor of Guam um, after the USS Theodore Roosevelt um, offloaded a, a large number of its crew who uh, who had uh, who tested positive for COVID-19. And it was shocking to me that as an American territory, the resources available to the tiny public health department were so limited. But very early on, we discovered that in every school, there is a nurse practitioner, and they became the front line of test and trace, and then, and, and which became a, a gold standard, um, and, and then were able to sort of start parceling out the, uh, the vaccine distribution as it came. So for every challenge, there is a silver lining. It, it's been fascinating. Well, look, I know we're coming up to the top of the hour. My last question for all of you is, uh, and you get to choose, what keeps you up at night? What's terrifying the life out of you? Or what are you most excited about in this new age of pandemics? And, you know, Margot, perhaps I could kick off with you first. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for <laughs> tossing me that challenging question first. I think that what excites me and keeps me up at night are probably two sides of the same coin, which is not surprising. Uh, what excites me is a flavor of what we've talked about today, which is this sort of unending quest uh, that several of us have been on to uh, try and appropriate and bring in private sector approaches to really ch uh, address these equity gaps that we see in the U.S. healthcare system and in the markets uh, that we've talked about. So this is not a uniquely U.S. situation. But the, the thing that keeps me up at night is really that business model that, Marissa, you mentioned it earlier. How do we create enough uh, resources and sustain enough resources to actually bring a private sector approach to bear that means you focus on quality, it means you focus on speed, accuracy, uh, be able to iterate rapidly and fail fast and pay for it. <laughs> and so that's what's fascinating about what Medicine 360 is trying to do. And we're, we're thinking ahead to the next few years and talking about what does our funding model need to be? Uh, we have the, the luxury right now having some revenue come in, in in the form of a royalty. We have a partnership with a, with a large pharmaceutical company called AbbVie. Uh, that that does help, that is part of our business model. Um, but the incorporation of new philanthropic money really does provide both a challenge and an opportunity to figure out how those two sources of revenue go together. And so I think that's the that's the ongoing quest. And certainly that's not, it's not a proven model yet, but we're really uh, excited to, to figure that out. Thanks, Margot. And, and um, Brandon, over to you. Uh, nightmare or or the thing you're most excited about? I think for me, it's probably most excited. So I'll end on, a, on an optimistic note here. Uh, but I think I look at sort of the landscape right now of the private sector and their willingness to get involved. And I see leaders, you know, like Larry Fink uh, and others, and I see the business roundtable, and I see this sea change right now in terms of the private sector and its need, not just willingness, but its need to get involved in critical issues that impact us all. You know, this is now part and parcel of business. And to see this happening, uh, I think, is pretty exciting because it can lead to much greater collaboration and, you know, solve solvable problems that we all really care about. So for me, this is quite a sea change that I think COVID has certainly probably accelerated. Um, so to see this type of collaboration happening now um, and the excitement um, is really um, something that I is near and dear to my heart. And companies that are not engaging in good creating shared value programs, I think, are increasingly putting themselves at risk. Um, you know, it really is a part of successful business now to be engaged, to care about stakeholders. Andre. So I think my answer would be a similar to Margot. There's a flavor of what Margot said, which is um, sort of two sides of the same coin. I'm most excited to see the fruits of all the work that we as Medicine 360 have put in the last six or seven years in making our product uh, building the foundation to make this method finally available to women globally um, through partnerships and registrations and countries and getting um, interest from internally from our board and globally from other groups to see whether that takes off. But on the flip side, my fear is that our greatest success might also lead to our failure in that we have induced the competition, um, big pharma to come in and really lower their price, which is great. That's gonna be great for access. But the question, as Margot said, is around the business model. How do we stick around so that we can see 
us still being a part of that and they're not going back to only having one supplier which i think would be terrible for women so exciting to see what what comes and hoping that it includes us and our method so that we can continue to put put the pressure that needs to be put on on the private players thank you so marissa final words from from you and and given your unique view of the different sectors uh working in global health um what keeps you up at night and what's exciting you so i am excited about the attention that is being placed on emerging markets as a a, a place to introduce innovations in global health innovations that are both coming from the outside as well as innovations that are coming in and i think with the themes that that margo brandon and andre have all touched on you know we're seeing it's not just coming from csr anymore in in terms of multinational corporations it's coming from profit drivers and i think that's an opportunity and it also keeps me up at night because then it raises the question of how do we ensure that we're bringing in all stakeholders into this this transition how do we ensure that it's promoting um, a vibrant opportunity set for patients to be able to choose from different options um, and that it's being demand driven as well, that we're really figuring out how to market these things to patients in a way that um, that aligns with their values and aligns with what they actually need. So I think there's a lot of excitement. There's also a lot of work to be done. I think that's a great place to, uh, to end it up. Um, a lot of excitement and a lot of hard work for us to do. So with that, um, everyone, please join me in thanking our fantastic uh, guests who gave us a really in-depth and exciting uh, insight into the role uh, the private sector approaches can play in global health strategies. Um, thanks from Sarah Anderson, the Executive Director of the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Um, a Shot in the Arm podcast will be releasing this in the next few days as uh, one of our podcasts reaching our audiences around the world. Uh, for more information about the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, go to www.bayareaglobalhealth.org. Um, and finally, a big thanks to our member organizations, PSI, Medicines 360 and Resonance Global. We really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Have a great day. Have a great week and please have a safe week. <laughs>